a series in Nehemiah. This is a three-part message um, through the whole book, and we're looking at building. So I'm going to recap briefly here because I know some of you were not here the last week. Um, building, and the belief behind these three messages of Nehemiah is this. You were made to build broken things in this world. Not build something that's broken, but build the broken things into something that's restored. So Nehemiah is this Jew who lives in Persia, and he hears that Jerusalem has been bombarded and it's in ruins. The city is completely leveled, the city is in rubble and ruins, it's it's destroyed. And Nehemiah goes to Jerusalem to rebuild the city. And what we looked at last week was that the city is a microcosm. It's a little tiny example of the brokenness in this world all around us. Because as Genesis, the beginning of the Bible opens with darkness and chaos, something that's not built, and then God steps in and builds it. We call that creation. So Nehemiah opens with something that's leveled. It's not quite built. It's it's chaos, it's darkness, and Nehemiah goes in like a creator and takes the rubble and builds it into a city. And that is what I'm calling us into, is not to look at Nehemiah as some dude in the past that built some city in the past, but as an example, as a model, as someone that we read who's inviting you into what God has called you to be as a person. So in the short of it is this. There is a Jerusalem right now that needs you to be its builder. It might be a person, it might be a place, but everywhere we look in this world, it's broken. It's like Jerusalem in this book, and you are its Nehemiah. So that's what it means to be a builder, is to go into the broken realms of this world and to build it up to reconstruct it. That's what this is about. So, let's, um, let's read Nehemiah chapter 4, and then we'll pray. So follow the story. Nehemiah is now building, chapter 4, verse 1. Now when Sanballat, he's the bad guy, heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged and jeered at the Jews And he said in the presence of his brothers and of many of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? See, they're ridiculing the work. What do they think they're doing? It's a pile of rocks. They can't make anything out of this. Well, Sambalot's minions join in. Verse 3, Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, his little sidekick, and he said, Yeah, what are they building? If a fox goes on it, he will break down their stone wall. And they all laugh. <laughs> then all Nehemiah does is this. He doesn't throw rocks at them. He doesn't threaten them. He doesn't draw his sword. He doesn't yell at them. He doesn't tell them what's up. He just prays. <laughs> Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Now, this isn't just a prayer like, oh, God, help us. This is, this is like real praying here, okay? This is man prayer and woman prayer. 
<laughs> like, listen to this. God, hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their names, I'm sorry, and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. Wouldn't you like that prayer prayed for you? (laughs) Forgive them not, God, and God, let them become like Jerusalem. Ruined and captives and basically victims of war. Woo! That's that's heavy prayer right there. So remember, God help us. It's God deal with them. Verse, we'll talk about that briefly. Verse 6. So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height. So they're halfway done. For the people had a mind to work. But, episode two, attack number two. When Sanballat and his minions, Tobiah, and the Arabs, and the Ammonites, and the Ashadites, heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward, and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. What did Nehemiah do again? Prayed. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. But things are getting bad. Verse 10. In Judah. Now Judah is where Jerusalem is. Okay, So it's the people around the city. In Judah it was said. The strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, They will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. Now, they won't even know what hits them. We're going to just lop their heads off. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. In other words, panic, they're going to attack. Stop the work. Get out of there. Verse 13. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Now, when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. And from that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. So now they're working and defending. Sword and hammer, shovel and spear, you know, one in each hand. They're going at it, both of them. Um, Now look at verse 19. And Nehemiah said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, The work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall, far from one another. So, in the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work, and half of them held spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, 
Let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem. So stay in the city, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. All right. Father, as we look at your word and Nehemiah's work, I pray that you open our eyes in this world to see your reality working amongst us. That we would be drawn in to build up the broken down places with you. With the skills you've given us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, so three messages about building. Last week, pre-building phase. This week, building phase. We see them actually in the labor, right? Next week, post-building phase. So everything you need to know about building in these three parts. How do you get prepared? How do you do it? And then what do you do when it's all said and done? Do you just like wipe your hands and forget about it? Or what goes on afterward? So we're in the building phase. Last week, the pre-building phase, we learned this. That you begin, you become a builder when your heart begins to break for the brokenness around you. That's when you know that you're on the first steps becoming a builder. Your heart breaks for the broken people and the broken places around. And that's when it begins to start. And we looked at some of the details about how Nehemiah got ready to become a builder. You can go on the podcast and hear that if you'd like. Uh, now we see him in action. He's building and this is what I notice right off the bat when I read this. Nowhere do we see an account of the work itself being too hard. Nowhere do we see complaints that oh, we have to carry rocks all day. Oh, we have to put out the rubbish. Oh, we have to put mortar between mortar. Mortar. <laughs> we have to put mortar between the rocks. Like not, that was none of their complaints. You see, what I learned here from Nehemiah is that to be a builder, the hardest part about building is not the work itself. The hardest part about building is committing to see it all the way through. Can you relate to that? Sometimes when we begin to build broken places, some of you went to base camp and you know exactly what that's like. The labor itself is joyous. There's nothing wrong with the labor. There's nothing complaining about it. But what's hard is following all the way through. Sometimes opposition comes up and you want to just, ah, I'm done building. And, and, and we become what I want to call halfway settlers. You've ever played the game Settlers of Catan? It's a big board game about basically you're like colonists and you're settling a little town and you try to get the town to become cities. No, you're not traveling, you're settling. Settling means you stop moving. (laughs) Well, this is what I think about um, the halfway settlers. Not the settlers of Catan, but the settlers of the halfwayers. (laughs) It's when we begin to do a good work. We begin to build up what's broken down and we see progress and at the halfway point, we settle. We say, it's a lot better than it was. This is good enough. Right? I mean, imagine Jerusalem's a heap of rubble. They got the wall up to half its height. How tempting is it to look at that and say, it is a million times better 
better than it ever was when we got here. Let's call it a day, guys. We're done. Good job. We got the wall halfway up. Someone else will take care of it. Or this is good enough. Can you relate to that mentality? I think that honestly, building, that's the hardest part about building, is becoming someone who does not settle halfway. Who says, I'm going to work at this and build this until it is finished. Well, halfway settlers happen, not because we start out the work and say, oh, I'll just like throw a rock in and say, good enough. We actually desire to do it right, right? But we become halfway settlers for one reason. Discouragement. Discouragement. And that's actually, if you were a note taker, the title of this is Defending Against Discouragement. Discouragement is what causes us to say, good enough, I'm bowing out. Why? We start off with passion and excitement. We felt this in many things. And we're like, Whoa, I love this. And I'm going to put all my heart into it. And we're like so ambitious. And nobody can stop us. Sambalot and his little minions come and say, ha, ha, It's such a pathetic wall that even if a fox came on, it would fall down. And we go, oh, You can't stop me. We are so dedicated to this wall that you just keep building despite their opposition. But then something always happens, right? Somewhere down the road, we're less ambitious. We're less passionate. We're more prone to fail we get tired we're like oh this wall took so much work to get halfway we're only halfway there and they're still trying to stop us what do we do let's just quit so how do we defend against this discouragement discourage bless you hannah discouragement it should be noticed comes from two places it comes from without right outside of the church outside of christianity people that you expect it to come from Right? My sister is in Uganda. Well, she is right now in Montana, but she has been serving on the Uganda mission field. And she is never surprised when unbelievers say, what are you doing with your life? That's so stupid. Like, you're, you're endangering yourself. Discouraging, right? But you expect that. So you're somewhat ready for it. So discouragement comes from without. Discouragement also comes, and this is the harder discouragement to fight against. Discouragement comes from doubt, from within. And that's hard. Because you expect other people to be like, yeah, you shouldn't be doing that. You're wasting your life. Go do something for yourself. You earned a retirement or you earned whatever, you know. But when your doubt begins to tell you what you're doing is stupid, that's hard to fight against. And that is what we see in these two attacks from Sambalot and his minions. First, they come up and they threat. Uh, I'm sorry, they taunt the work, right? They say, ha, 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 it's stupid. What you're doing is retarded. It will never pass. Nehemiah's like, whatever. And they keep building. But, verse 6, the wall is halfway done. Sandblock comes for the second attack. This time, discouragement isn't coming from outside in. It's coming from inside. They hear about threats of war. And it's the laborers in verse 10. The laborers say, Oh, it's too much. Our strength is failing. By ourselves, we can't do it. We, we want to quit. It's way, we can't do it. So, discouragement from without and from doubt. 
So let's look briefly at the without part. Because listen, any time that we go and build, you're going to have that attack, right? Sambalot and his minions are going to laugh at you and say, stop wasting your time. How do you handle that? How do you stand up and say, whatever? How do you have that courage, that admirable courage that Nehemiah has to say, Lord, curse them and keep working. How do you get to that? Because I think sometimes our prayers are more like, God, do you hear what they said about me? Is that true? What am I supposed to do? Lord, let me feel better about myself. Nehemiah's like, whatever, they are stupid, Lord, and you know it. Deal with them. So when discouragement comes from without, let's, I, I see three very quick lessons that we can learn from Nehemiah. How do you handle that? Well, first of all, you need to identify the real enemy. Identify the real enemy. What, what, do, you, what do you mean, the real enemy? Well, there's, there's actually two enemies at work every time someone opposes you and attacks you. Paul calls this, in Ephesians 6, spiritual warfare. And he talks about two enemies in spiritual warfare. There's the real enemy, and there's the perceived enemy. You know what I mean? There's the enemy you see, the perceived. But there's the real enemy, you can actually see he's behind the perceived enemy working. Paul put it in this terms. He said, your war is not against flesh and blood, stuff you can touch and see. Your war is against, and he lists these weird names we don't use today, like principalities and powers and princes and dark forces of the air and stuff. Basically, he's talking about Satan and his minions. That's the real enemy, Paul says. What happens is the real enemy opposes you. Not by some invisible imaginary force like, whoa, what's going on? Who hit me? Satan's against me. What's going on? (laughs) The real enemy attacks us through flesh and blood, through human beings. So Sambalot and his minions, they are not the real enemy. They're the perceived enemy. They're the ones that the real enemy is using to rile up Nehemiah. So, listen... Learn to perceive the real enemy. Notice Nehemiah doesn't say, Sambalot, you jerk, you're standing away God's work, and go attack him, guys, go lop his head off. It's not his approach, because he knows that Sambalot's just the perceived enemy. The real enemy is behind him, and he can't even touch him, because you can't even see the real enemy. See, so Nehemiah understands, and therefore he doesn't go all crazy and attack him. Because what does spiritual warfare want to do to you? Its main goal is to distract you from your building. Spiritual warfare wants you to get riled up at the people. It wants you to attack Sambalot. But Nehemiah understands, and he doesn't go after the bait. He stays focused on the work. So, identify the real enemy. Number two, this is very much related. You have an option in this position when you're attacked this, without discouragement coming in you have an option pray or become prey right pray or pray p-r-e-y versus prayer nehemiah chooses to pray and that is what prevented him from going all in his flesh and his feelings and his emotions and going "Ah, go get him guys If he had not prayed, he would have become a prey to the distraction. It would have eaten him and devoured him, and the building of the wall would have just diminished. 
So when you have those, you know, when the attack comes, you've got the option. Am I going to pray or am I going to fall prey to this distraction? And then thirdly, Nehemiah recalls the enemy's fate. This is, this is all, this kind of puts it all together. Recall the enemy's fate. In other words, when they're opposing you and attacking you, don't feel like, oh my gosh, they might have a point. We might be doing something stupid. That's, that's a discouraging way to see it, right? Rather, Nehemiah says, what are you talking about? I know your fate. God is going to turn you into a heap of rubble. He's not going to forgive your sin. God's going to attack you. God's going to get you back. See, in his prayer, he recalls their fate, not his fate. He doesn't say, oh God, please don't let it be true. Please don't let us fall. Please don't let us fail. He says, God, remember that they're going to fail. Thank you. And he gets back to work. So don't feel like you have to deal with the enemy. Just pray that God takes care of it and move on. So that's how Nehemiah deals with the discouragement that comes from the outside. Relatively easy, right? For Nehemiah, he just like unfazed, just keeps on moving. In stride, doesn't even bother. He doesn't even miss a beat, right? Just keeps going. Well, they get the wall halfway built, and here's where problems come, right? Halfway good enough. Now the enemy seizes the weakness. He comes in, he threatens, and so we read that there in verse 8, that they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and cause confusion in it. Here discouragement comes from their threat to destroy the city. And they hear about this threat and doubt begins to creep in. And they begin to think, like verse 10 said, we can't do it. Those who bear the burdens, their strength is failing. We ourselves can't do this. We need help. This is impossible. They're beginning to doubt themselves, right? Does this sound like the same group of people in the first attack? Yeah, you can't do it. Like, God, just rip their heads off. And they keep, they get the wall up to half its height in no time because the people had a mind to work. And then all of a sudden, this rumor flies. They're still not happy. And then they go, oh, we can't do it. We want to quit. It's done. We, Nehemiah, this is over. This to me, this doubt is hard because of the halfway point, right? Like I was saying earlier. You begin to see, we made progress. I don't know that we were the right people. Maybe we were only called to do it halfway. Someone else will take over. Let's be done. But Nehemiah realizes, this is not what I was called to do. I was not called to be a halfway settler. I was called to be a finisher. I was called to be a builder. I was called to make the city. And so, they rise up. And they find a way to get through this discouragement. Get through this doubt. Now, what they need here in this situation, and what you and I need in this situation, is courage. Discouragement is the absence of courage, right? Discourage. It basically means to lose courage. To encourage 
is to give courage or to find courage, right? So they are discouraged. All of these events and their own doubt has caused them to lose their courage. They're like, what's going on? We don't have any courage. We can't do this. What they need is someone to encourage them, to help them find the courage that they've lost so that they can go back in it with the passion and the determination that they had at the very beginning of this project. You see, it's not that they weren't the right ones to do the work, but it's that halfway in, when the wall is halfway up, and that discouragement came, they lost their courage. All they need is to find that courage again, and they'll be ready to do the last half of the wall. Now, we see one place you don't find your courage in. Where do you find it? Not in man. Man is the very person that is discouraging them. For example, verse 12. It said that at that time, Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times. That's a Hebrew phrase for over and over and over and over and over. Not literally ten, but over and over, right? Just Facebook post after Facebook post. You're like, okay, D-friend, you're annoying. <laughs> over and over. Stop! They're going to kill you! Stop! Now, if they were trying to find their courage in their own friends, they're not getting it there. <laughs> they're telling them to stop. And so listen, when you're discouraged, don't dwell near the enemy like these Jews did. Look again at verse, four, verse 12, it says, At that time, Jews who lived near them. Who's them? Enemy. Those who lived near the enemy said, stop building the wall. Sometimes we are discouraged because we live too near. Well, actually, we live too far away from what we're trying to build. We put our minds not upon building, but we put our minds too close to the stuff of the enemy. And Paul said in Philippians 4 verse 8, To think upon whatever is lovely, pure, admirable, right? That list of things Paul says in Philippians 4, 8. Think upon those things, the things that are like God. That will lift you up. That will encourage you, not man. So, you don't find your courage in God. I mean, (laughs) you don't find your courage in man. You find your courage in God. That's the whole thing. That's what Nehemiah does. That's how they get on to building the wall. So look briefly, the two times Nehemiah gets it. He finds the courage in God. And what does he do? He encourages them. He gives the other people courage. He helps them find their courage in the same God he's finding courage in. So look at verse 14. He says this. In the middle of 14. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Remember him. That's where your courage lies. Find it there. And then again in verse 20, he really pounds it into them. He says this in verse 20. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there because our God will fight for us. So even if they do attack us like the rumor has it, don't be afraid. Rally where you hear the trumpet because there God will be in our midst fighting on our behalf. God will give us courage. That's where our courage lies. That's where our confidence is. 
So Nehemiah becomes an encourager to the discouraged builders. And he says, this is where your courage is. Don't listen to these men and women, these pansies, these halfway settlers. Listen and find your courage in God. So, I think the question for us then is how do we do that? How do we defend against discouragement? How do we find our courage in God? How do we do what Nehemiah did? We get it, right? We get that this discouragement is all from the enemy. How do we find that courage again? Two brief points that we find in this story. How Nehemiah finds courage in God. How Nehemiah defends against discouragement. First is this. Things, both these are very important. Remember that as a builder, you are not building projects. You're building people. You hear that? Remember that as a builder, you're building people, not projects. What's the difference? Well, if I'm building a project, I did a good job. It's halfway done. doesn't really matter. You know, it's better than it was. Did my job. But if I'm building people, there are faces to see, eyes to look into. You hear their stories. These are broken people. They have stories to share. They have pain in their eyes. They have fear behind their eyes. And you get to know them. You see their home. You see the wreckage and the carnage around them. You see the messed up stuff in their life. You share that pain and that suffering with them. You share in that brokenness. And suddenly, there's a bond and there's a commitment that says, this is a broken person that needs to be built up. This isn't just a project that can either go or not go. This is a human being. And I've heard their story. And my heart would break if I was not able to finish for them. Now, where do I get that? Well, if you've read Nehemiah, which I, everyone who was here last week said that they've been through the story and they know it well. You know in the previous chapter, chapter 3, that's actually where he starts building. And it's this long chapter about who built what part of the wall. And it's kind of boring, to be honest. But I want you to notice this. That chapter 3 uses the word house house 12 times house that's a very personal place that is someone's territory that's someone's possession to be at someone's house is to be in the very inner workings and the very center of their life it's to see where they sit it's to see how they spend their time it's to see what they eat what they talk about over dinner It's to see the family and the interactions, the things that, you know, they fight over and that they bug each other about and the things that they love each other for and the things they stand up for and the work that they do, the sacrifice that they make. It's to see all of that. And in a broken city, to be at the house is also to see, that's your house? You mean there's a huge bullet shell that is just torn through it? You mean that your roof has collapsed? You mean that you guys don't have food? So to build people, 
is to know these things. And it's not just, oh, yeah, I know about your physical house. But it's to know about home. Not just, you know, the, their address and where they sleep at night. But what makes them tick? What's their passion? What's their fear? What in their life has torn through their heart and made what the, the once was a house become a heap of rubble? It's to know those things about a person and to enter into that with them and to share it with them and say, come, I want to build this up with you. And so Nehemiah was able to make every person, it says this phrase in chapter 3, they repaired the wall on the other side of their house. See, he got into their lives and said, let's build here. So remember that we build people with stories, with pain. We don't build impersonal projects. And that's why, you know, when we were at um, base camp and when you do any other kind of outreach to people, I think it's so important that we look people in the eye, right? We don't just hand them bread like here a project. I'm just doing my duty, right? To get mission done. It's, hey, bread from one human being to another human being. I want to impart this to your broken life. And it's that eye contact. It's that conversation. It's that you're as much a human being as I am. And that's what James, uh, Peter, and John do in Acts chapter 3. They're walking through the temple and they see this man, this lame man, who's begging for food, he's begging for money. He's just pathetic, right? He's nothing. And they don't just walk by and throw a coin, that's a project. They walk by and say, look at us. That's a person. They say, we will give you what we have in our own heart, Jesus. We're going to share our life with you. So remember, we build people, not projects. Number two. That's the first way to find our courage in God. We're working for God, for his people. Number two. See God's silent work among us. See God's silent work among us. This is in verse 15, 4 verse 15. It's in the very middle, mind you, very middle of the story. It says this, When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. So easy to miss that phrase, right? God frustrated their plan. The enemy's plan. Small little phrase, but it's at the very center of the story. And unless you're looking for that phrase, it's so easy to miss. And I believe that we so often miss that little phrase in life. We're discouraged, and we've lost our courage, and we're going around saying, we can't do it, we can't finish just become a halfway settler. But we didn't see that in the work, God was silently working there the whole time. We kind of like do our work and kind of like think that, oh, if God is really in this, we're going to see this big mega explosion or this big miracle and be like, God showed up. That wasn't the case in the story. Very silent, very behind the scene. Nehemiah sees something that nobody else saw. He saw that the enemy didn't attack because God frustrated their plan. 
And how often do we miss God's work because we aren't looking? This is the turning point of the story. What we have here in this, this pattern, this narrative, is first, right, the second attack, it starts like this. Jerusalem is threatened, and what do the workers do? They stop. We can't do it. Help! But then towards the end, here in verse 21, we labored at the work. The work continued. And then in verse 22, so there were people that stayed in Jerusalem and acted as guards. Jerusalem is defended. Do you see this? You might want to visualize this, so look at me. The story works like this. Jerusalem is threatened. They're discouraged and stop working. They start working and are encouraged. Jerusalem is defended. You see the flow? It's threatened. We stop. We go back to work. It's defended. What is the turning point? What happens? What happens is in between those two ends is Nehemiah tells the people, remember the Lord. He will fight for us. He encourages them. You see that? He, by giving them courage, enables them to go back to work. That's it. And you might ask, well, what did Nehemiah see? The very, very, very center of everything. Jerusalem is attacked. It's defended. They're discouraged. They're encouraged. Nehemiah encourages them twice. And then very middle, sandwiched between all of this is verse 15. Because God frustrated their plans. The enemy's plans. Nehemiah got a glimpse of God working behind the scenes, silently, quietly, almost invisibly. But Nehemiah was looking. He saw it. And when he saw it, he was encouraged. He said, that's where my courage lies. That's where I lost it. God is with us. We aren't building alone. He's building with us, right beside us. And so he starts to tell the builders with him, listen, God is with us. And then they say, yeah, he's with us. So let's go back to building. We can finish the last half. And they go back to it and they finish the last half. And the wall is done, as we'll see next week. Why? Because Nehemiah saw God's silent work among them. You see that? And it's not even something that's always obvious. But it's the man who looks. I need courage in God. Where is God? Where is God? And there, there. Just like there's an enemy working behind Sambalot, Nehemiah sees that there's also God working behind many circumstances. So Nehemiah sees it. And he joins it. That's the key. When you see God silently at work, join it. Don't say, oh, that's cool. Join it. (laughs) And this is what you learn when you join God's work. Oh. God was building the whole time. He did not stop when we felt like stopping. He was already building before we got here. And while we freak out and run around, God, look at, listen to him, we can't do it. We think we're inviting God to help us work and build, but God's like, nope, (laughs) I'm already building. I'm just waiting for you guys to join me. 
And that's what Nehemiah sees, he shares, and the discouraged builders are encouraged and they push on. And they're all right because God is with them. So defend. Defend against discouragement. Look for God and where he's at work in ways that you might be overlooking. And realize, realize that you aren't trying to get God to help you. He's already there. Look for him, join him, and know that you're not building alone, but his presence is your courage. Amen? So Lord, we pray that as you send us to be builders, to those places that are breaking our heart, those people that are breaking our heart, you help us to see where you're working there. God, we want to join you. So give the discouraged, give the halfway settler the courage they need in you to build up the broken down in this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.